I feel very sorry for poor old Britney Spears. Um, she's adored by millions. I don't know whether you noticed this week, she's on the up again. Um, got several MTV awards. Russell Brand described it as the resurrection of Britney. But uh, there is, isn't there, an internal unease inside her which seems to constantly rise up and threaten to destroy her. Who can forget the shaven-headed Brittany? Somehow she needs to express that unease in self-mutilation. The name that uh, psychologists, sociologists give to that unease internal unease sometimes is shame and it doesn't just affect women a few weeks ago the millionaire Christopher Foster killed his wife his teenage daughter set light to his house all his possessions um, before killing himself and all because he was about to be made bankrupt and he just couldn't face telling his family about it And uh, one very perceptive columnist wrote this. For some people, what you own is who you are. Identity is tightly bound up in possessions and status. Take those away and it crumbles to dust. Our houses and our cars and our gadgets are the things we use to shore up our fragile selves. Embarrassment is one of the most potent and one of the least recognised of our emotions. It rips away the facade and shows us for what we are. It leaves us with no place to hide. We are faced with our insignificant, fearful selves. We dream of being naked in front of an audience and wake up sweating in horror. Foster thought of being naked in front of an audience and it seems got out his shotgun and his petrol cans and incinerated his existence just to make it all go away. That columnist, I think, rightly identified that man's motivations but she extended it to all of us. Embarrassment or shame is a major driving force in the lives of vast numbers of people. Teenagers learn to wear a mask in order to cope with their feelings of insecurity. Women are taught to be obsessively concerned about their looks for similar reasons. Men are driven to to succeed and display their success all because actually an awful lot of our life is devoted to finding something to cover us, something to mask us, something to make us feel okay about ourselves, something to make us look okay in the presence of other people. When the Apostle Paul wrote this letter to the, uh, the, the, the Christians in Corinth, He knew that Corinth was a city absolutely uh, dominated by a culture of celebrity and success and by a hidden 
culture of shame. And into that culture, a culture with its pop stars and its multi-millionaires, as well as its failures and its down and outs, into that culture, Paul planted a little church. And actually most of the members of that church were, were very ordinary. A few belonged to the elite. Some of the elite people, like uh, Priscilla and Aquila, for instance, who actually hosted the church in their home and supported the apostle, that they were great people. But by the time Paul wrote this letter, actually a new group of elite, wealthy, influential, famous people had moved into the church and were starting to throw their weight around. And they were determined that in this, in this fame-obsessed, shame-fearing culture that they lived in, they must convert this ragtag little church into something that would be respectable in Corinthian society. They argued, for instance, over the leader that they needed who would best enhance the reputation of that church in the society. And what they were really trying to do, Paul knew, was to avoid being shamed, avoid being exposed, avoid being laughed at as Christians, avoid being... Uh, being being despised because so many of those people in that church were frankly rather despicable. In reality, he knew that the driving forces in that church were much more about a deep unease than anything else. They were trying to cover up their shame I'm a Christian, but hey, I belong to a very successful church. I'm a Christian, yeah, yeah, but I belong to a cool church. I'm a Christian, but the, the key people, the leading people are impressive in my church. Don't, don't despise me, please, Corinthian culture. Don't despise me, please, Oxford culture. What I want to say to you this morning, what the Apostle Paul wanted to say to, to those people is that we don't need to be driven by those forces. We don't. We don't need to be worried about what the world around thinks of us. We don't need to devote our whole lives, whether it's in church or whether it's in our wider life, we don't need to devote ourselves to trying to cover up that inner unease, to try to win the respect of people around us. We don't need to. Because we can be people who are utterly at peace and content and unmoved by the foolish fame-oriented, success-oriented culture that was Corinth, that is Britain. The first uh, seven verses of, uh, of chapter 4 in some ways summarise an awful lot of what Paul has been saying in the first three chapters. We, we looked a year ago at the first three chapters and you can still get those uh, uh, to listen to on the internet 
uh, if you want to, on the church website. So we're going to launch straight in at the beginning of chapter 4 here and, and, and try, to, try to absorb Paul's summary to these people who were desperately trying to make themselves impressive. What he says to them about how actually they can have peace which is not driven by those desires. We're going to look at rather high speed at two issues that he highlights before we dwell on a third one. First one's in verse 1. So, he says, you fame and success oriented people, you shame driven people, recognise actually in God, if you are Christians, you have an amazingly low and high status already. So then men ought to regard us as servants of Christ and those entrusted with the secret things of God, he says. He's um, uh, talking, of course, about how they should regard him personally, but um, he makes it plain in verse 6 that he... um, applies, he he speaks in that way, uh, intending that they will extend that not only to how how they regard him, but how they regard themselves. All Christians should be regarded the way he speaks of himself in verse 1. All of us, as Christians, he says, are no more than lowly servants of Christ uses a, a, a word there to, to indicate that their only duty is to do the will of the Master. But they're servants of Christ. We are stewards, he says, or those entrusted with the secret things of God, that is the Gospel, the truths of the Gospel that God has now revealed in um, uh, uh, in the uh, the Bible, we are both ho- low and high. We are only servants. We'll only ever be servants. We're only stewards. We'll only ever be students, stewards. But servants of who? Stewards of what? That dignified status that we have knocks prime minister or pop star or world-renowned academic or multi-millionaire into a cocked hat. If we really understood that, we would not be particularly obsessed by all the other things that grab our attention. We'd be captivated by the incredibly dignified role that each of us has. If we only saw that all we will ever be is lowly servants in God's kingdom, we wouldn't be worried when someone looks down on us. Oh yeah, I may be a servant. I'm a servant of Jesus. That's an okay place to be. I said we'd be brief, let's move on. Recognise, says uh, Paul, to these 
fame and success obsessed, shame fearing people, recognizing, recognize actually that everything anyway is only a gift from God. Did you see that at the end? Who makes you different from anyone else? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? We are all different. How do we handle those differences? You know, I see plenty of people who are swelled with pride at their gifts. How ridiculous if you're a Christian. That's not how you handle great gifts. They are just that, aren't they? Gifts. Gifts from God. Whoever on Christmas Day... Um, opened a present and turned to the giver of the present or even to other people and said, look what a great person I am. They say, look what a wonderful thing I've been given. Someone loves me very much. How ridiculous, says the Apostle. To boast over a gift. And other people, I know, feel aggrieved or ashamed that they're not gifted in the way that they wish others, uh, wish they were, that they see others are. We in turn need to recognise that God is wise and God is loving. He doesn't make everyone the same. To those whom he gives great gifts, he does give great responsibilities. It is a burden as well as a privilege. And to us who have lesser gifts, well, he has shaped us exactly for how he wants to use us. Don't envy those who have other lives to lead before God. Simply find contentment in the life that God has shaped you for. He made you for a specific purpose, as a, as a perfect piece in his great jigsaw, which is the history of the world. He shaped you and formed you and moulded you and all you need to do is fit into that place that he ordained for you and be content. So why boast? Why be envious? You have a loving Father who has gifted you, says the Apostle. Respond to him as a giver of good things. Two bits of advice. There are other bits, but the, uh, the piece that I want to dwell on for the rest of our time... <coughs> is verses 3 to 5. Keep a clear conscience, says the Apostle. You see, he knows that an uneasy conscience is the most profound thing that drives us. It's a sense of unease with God that makes us want to cover it up with all sorts of other things that win the approval of people around but never really satisfies. 
Shame stems ultimately not from what other people think of us, but from a worry about what God thinks of us. And uh, Paul says here really, really clearly, we can have a clear conscience. We can live, actually, without fearing exposure, being found naked. Christians are often accused of actually stirring up the opposite, of having a morbid obsession with their own sin, cultivating a bad conscience. And I think sometimes that is true amongst Christians. But, but uh, I hope you'll see this morning, that's a long, long way from the teaching of the Apostle Paul. He has the most incredibly, surprisingly, almost shockingly robust conscience. Did you see that? Verse 3, I care very little if I am judged by you or by any human court. I don't even judge myself. My conscience is clear. That doesn't make me innocent. It's the Lord who judges me. Therefore judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait till the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness. will expose the motives of men's hearts. And at that time each will receive his praise from God. I don't even judge myself, he says. I have a clear conscience. I want us to, uh, for, for a few minutes, I want us to, to, to understand some confusions, to get straight some confusions that we may have in our minds as we look at verses like that, before actually trying to, trying to distill it down to some clear set of things that we need to do in order to have a, a clear conscience to leave here at peace with God. There are some confusing things. First of all, um, Paul says he doesn't judge himself in verse 3. Does that mean that he never actually thinks critically in any way about any of his actions? No, it cannot mean that. Actually, in chapter 11 of uh, this letter, he says, a person ought to examine themselves before they come to communion. We'll be doing that in a minute and it's appropriate for us to examine ourselves. In 2 Corinthians chapter 13 verse 5 he says everyone ought to examine themselves to see if they are in the faith, in the faith even, if they're Christians. There's a legitimate and important place for us to do some assessing of our lives. So when he says he doesn't judge himself, he's, he's not saying, I never think critically about, it any, about my life in any way. He's saying, rather it seems, he doesn't pass final judgment on himself. He doesn't obsess deeply about the depravity of sins. He doesn't, doesn't get obsessed with whether he's serving God exactly, precisely in the way that, that he should. Um, they're obsessing about that. They're constantly debating whether Paul is really the leader that he's cracked up to be. And he says, I'm, I'm not going to worry about that. What you think, or actually, I'm not even going to think too deeply about it myself. I'm not going to get involved in some minute dissection of my own character. It will not be helpful. Honest self-examination, yes. Obsessive judgmentalism, either about other people or about ourselves. No. I care very little if I'm judged by you. I don't even judge myself. 
Another thing that sometimes confuses people is that Paul indicates that he clearly that he doesn't know the outcome of God's final judgment. Did you see that in verse 4? My conscience is clear, he says, that that doesn't make me innocent. Some people have interpreted that, that to mean that he's not confident of his salvation. My uh, Catholic friends at university, for instance, were constantly castigating uh, evangelicals for their, for their uh, confidence in their salvation. They said, no, that is a classic sin of presumption. But Paul and, frankly, every other New Testament uh, believer uh, in, in, in the New Testament does actually have a humble confidence in their salvation. The Apostle John even says that he wrote his first letter to his readers so that they would be confident of their salvation. So Paul cannot be saying that he's not confident that he will be forgiven on the last day. That would fly in the face of much else of what he says and what others say. He was absolutely confident Jesus had died for all his sins. Now, rather he's talking about uh, not knowing exactly the details of God's assessment of his actions. There will be a detailed assessment of his actions on the last day. God is committed to forgiving all his sins, but God will also pass a a secondary judgment, a subordinate judgment, not a judgment that is finally to determine whether he goes to heaven or not, but an assessment of his life. And God, he says, will, uh, uh, will bring out what is hidden in the darkness. He will expose the motives of, of, of my heart. And frankly, he says, the details of that assessment, are, are, I just don't know. I know that I have faith in Christ. I know that Jesus died for my sins. I'm not going to obsess about the details. And then most strikingly, Paul makes that statement that his conscience is clear, doesn't he? And uh, again, another question arises often in people's minds. Does that mean that Paul is unaware of any sin in his life at all? That Paul has got to a point where he doesn't consider that he ever sins? I have to say that um, I've often read passages like this, I've often frankly heard sermons on passages like this about how to have a good conscience and I've left having a much, much worse conscience. Because the message seems to go roughly like uh, don't do anything wrong and then you'll have a good conscience. And I know that I have. I do do things wrong. Is that what Paul's saying? Well, Paul's the same man who wrote, for instance, Romans chapter 7, in which he describes what it feels like to be tyrannised by sin. 
And he very carefully writes that in the present tense. He goes on to make it plain that the, the, the chief characteristic of a Christian life is that the Holy Spirit helps us and enables us to defeat sins. Sin is not the, not the, 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 the core characteristic of a Christian life. Actually, the beginnings of victories over sins is the core characteristic of a Christian life. But those victories are not yet complete. And he knows from his own experience that there are times when he fails. Or um, to give you another witness, James in the New Testament writes that um, we all stumble in many ways. Or another witness, the, the Apostle John, um, when he writes 1, 1 John, he says, I write this to you so that you will not sin. He agrees with Paul that the, that the aim, the direction of a Christian life is that we will not sin. And then he adds immediately afterwards, but if anyone does sin, we have Jesus Christ who died for our sins. So the Apostle is not here saying that he has a good conscience because frankly he's defeated all sin in his life and now he's leading a perfect life. He's saying something different. He's saying he has a good conscience because he has entrusted himself to Jesus Christ and because he is now living a life which is committed to defeating sin. Now, I want to try and put that together. I've, I've dealt with some, uh, some, some, some misunderstandings that there, that, that there may be. Um, uh, and I, I want to try to distill for you this morning, and if you've fallen asleep, now's the time to wake up, I want to try to distill for you this morning how to have a good conscience. And this is something that I've wrestled with for, for years and I've wrestled with hard this week. And I know that some people liked um, an acronym we used a, a few months ago, um, ANTHEM, about uh, defe defeating sexual sin. So I've, that, I, I nicked that one from John Piper. Um, uh, I've tried my own. You can tell me whether it's useful and whether it helps. Um, it's circle. And by some miracle of providence, I think it also indicates a cycle that we will go through until we meet Jesus face to face. But let me suggest to you a distillation of how Paul can have such a robust conscience how he can be a person who is not worried about what the world thinks about him because he's safe and confident about what God thinks about him. C. This is where the um, NAF PowerPoint will be particularly frustrating. I apologise for that. C. Commit your whole life to God. Let me say what that means. That means that if you are saying that there is a part of my life that I am not prepared to have Jesus rule over, you are not a Christian. Let me be absolutely clear about that. 
If you are saying that there is, there is a part of my life that God can't have, that is incompatible with being a Christian. Jesus was absolutely clear. Whoever would come after me must take up his cross daily and follow me. Lose his life for me. Put following me as a higher priority than, than, than my love for my members of the family, than my love for money, than my love for, 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 for anything else. Okay. You have an appropriate bad conscience before God if you have not said he can have it all. But this side of eternity, we will not perfectly follow Christ. It's not saying that now we must perfectly submit every area of our life to Jesus Christ. We must be able to say, yes, I want that to be reality. We cannot say, yes, that has become the full, complete reality in my life. The first thing we need to have in our minds is nothing is held back in principle. I must commit everything for Jesus. The second thing in this circle is inform your conscience. Now I say that because uh, for two reasons. One is that there's an awful lot of people who have a bad conscience for uh, not a good reason. Um, The Apostle later on in 1 Corinthians for instance has to deal with people who are terribly worried about uh, meat sacrificed to idols when they needn't be so anxious. There are an awful lot of anxious people out there who just need to be told it's not such a big deal. But there are an awful lot of of, uh, um, confident people as well who need to see actually the depths or what is going wrong in their heart. And it is scripture which informs our conscience again and again. If you're not reading your Bible, if you're not trying to understand it, if you're not trying to see the life that it calls you to live, then you will either have a disproportionately anxious conscience because you haven't had it, uh, had it eased, or more likely you will have what the Bible calls a seared conscience, which is one that just hasn't started to see what Jesus needs to change in you. Inform your conscience. Read the Bible. Read it with a tender heart. Ask God to show you. And then there's a big ah. Rapidly, rapidly, rapidly deal with it. Rapidly go to Christ and ask for forgiveness. There is full forgiveness and he calls us to go to him. Like, 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 like that prodigal son coming back to his father. Do it rapidly. Rapidly deal with the sin, the practical consequences of the sin. Maybe you've hurt someone. Go and sort it out with them. Jesus said if anyone's going up to worship at the temple and realises someone's got something against him, then leave what he's going to do, go and get that sorted out before you can come back to God. You cannot worship God if you haven't sorted what you need to sort. Not everything 
can be um, can be dealt with in that way. Many things simply just need us to go to Christ. But do it. Do not leave it undone. We do not need to fear him. Men with your pride particularly, it, it's terribly hard to go and apologise, isn't it? But do it rapidly. Don't let it linger. And then see, confess your sins to to one another. Not not every last detailed sin needs to be needs to be shared uh, with with with, a, with another person. You don't need to be someone who confesses to 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 the world at large either. One or two friends are enough. Married people, it's not necessary. Not always your spouse, who is the best person to confess all your your sins too. Sometimes that can be too big a weight to bear on, on, the, on the marriage. I remember talking to a very wise uh, wife uh, some time ago who said that um, she needed to know that her husband was dealing with his struggles with lust with someone and confessing it openly but she didn't want to know the details of his struggles. Thank you. Some things actually can poison a marriage and need to be dealt uh, dealt with outside. But confess. Scripture is clear about it. And remember, you don't need a priest. I'm very happy if people need to come and talk to me. I'm very happy for, for, for you to do that. But what we need, says Scripture, is the reverent one another. Confess your sins to one another. And then, and here's where we come circling back into this passage where we can start to understand why Paul is able to say the things that he says with the strength and conviction that he says, then leave it to God. Leave it. Leave it behind. He promises that he is faithful and just and will forgive all of our sins. Don't constantly dig it up. Don't go in for some, some, some deep introspective uh, um, uh, guddling in the entrails of whatever sin it is. Leave it. God does have a fuller and deeper understanding of what is going on and one day all of that will be exposed. But we're not going to get to the bottom of it this side of eternity. All we need to know is we are forgiven. And then, enjoy God. See, God actually gives you a relationship with him to empower you, to help you to overcome besetting sins. He wants you today to enjoy a clear relationship with him. He assures you that if you have gone through those essential elements of seeking a good conscience, then you are okay with him. You can enjoy him. You can sing those hymns at the beginning without that nagging feeling that it's not quite me. can pray to him. You can be at peace with him. 
You can know that there is nothing in all eternity, neither angels nor demons, says the, says the Apostle, nothing that can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. You can know that for certain. And nothing else matters. You do not need to be driven in your heart by a desire to look successful with people, by a desire to look attractive to people, by all of those desires that war in our hearts and try to mask that sense of unease because God can and will remove that sense of unease so that you can enjoy him. I hear people say, yeah, but I know I'll sin tomorrow. I might sin in exactly the same way tomorrow. Can I really be at peace with God? And I say back to you, do you want, do you intend to fight that sin tomorrow? If you do, well, it's tomorrow's fight. You can leave it and you can enjoy the fact that you're forgiven today and ask God to give you the strength to do battle tomorrow. And maybe you will have some failures tomorrow. And maybe you will need to rapidly go to Christ again and can perhaps confess to your friend. Maybe you will. But if you know in your heart that you want to continue that battle and you don't have to fight it today, today you're okay with God. He'll deal with tomorrow, tomorrow. There's an old English saying that says a good conscience is a soft pillow. You can go to sleep at night every day at peace with God. Every day saying, my conscience is clear. You can live a life that is free from those other forces that drive so many people and quietly destroy so many people. Because you're okay with God. Just a few minutes, we are going to take communion. This is God's written word. The reformers used to say, this is God's visible word to you. This is where, this is where what is there on the page becomes what is there in my mouth. That Jesus gave himself for me. Jesus shed his blood for me. If you are following Jesus, I know there are sins. If you are following Jesus and you have sought his forgiveness and you can say, these things I'm learning to do, then this is for you. So that not only have you heard those words, 
but you can taste that solid reality.